Welcome to a Pain in the Glass podcast. This is Bill Shearhart, National Coach with Curling Canada, coming to you from my home in Grenbend, Ontario, on the shore of Lake Huron, in the ancestral land of the Kettle and Stony Point First Nations. A Pain in the Glass podcast is sponsored by Canada Curling Stone of Kamoka, Ontario. When I started the podcast, I wanted to be sure that it wasn't simply going to be a soapbox upon which I would stand and give my opinion about all things sports and curling in particular. I hope you would agree that I've stayed away from editorializing. Well, today is a departure from that stated philosophy. I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel about what I refer to as the culture of sport. We hear this term frequently, especially when a coach is hired for a team that is not producing very well. And the coach will say that his or her task, or at least part of his or her task, is changing the culture on the team, the culture of sport on that team. Well, what do we mean by the culture of sport? That's what I want to talk about today. A number of years ago, I came across something written by Bill Roden, and his topic was the title of today's episode, The Culture of Sport. There were two sentences in Mr. Roden's article that caught my eye. And here are those two sentences. Sport is that child we raised with money, but not love. Who we allowed to grow up amid privilege, but no value except to win at all costs. The child is grown up, out of control in a culture of cheating, of steroids, and illegal taping of embarrassing conduct off the field. Well, I'm old enough to have seen that child grow up. Sports, both as an athlete and as a coach, have been my life. I feel part of what Mr. Roden wrote about. These sentences have been sitting near my computer desk in written form for the past number of years, waiting for the right time. Well, now is that time. A podcast that I listen to quite regularly is Primetime Sports, out of the center of the universe, that'd be Toronto. The host is Bob McCowan, who regularly espouses upon topics that are of interest to the program's listeners, me included. He surrounds himself with intelligent, thoughtful, and knowledgeable colleagues. The topic of one of his shows was centered on the acceptance among professional athletes, teams, and fans that if they could get away with breaking or bending a rule, they would do it and be praised by teammates and coaches for doing so. And if they didn't, the sanctions from the same group would be noticeably negative. In other words, it was accepted within the culture of that sport to cheat if you could get away with it. But the topic did not remain with professional athletes. It moved quickly to minor sports, especially ice hockey. 
It was noted that within the ranks of ice hockey, coaches of young people around the age of 10 in practice were being taught how to get away with tactics and techniques that were clearly outside the rules of the game, but which were very effective to promote the team's chances of winning the game. The euphemisms for cheating are very creative. They include gaining a technical advantage, taking advantage of the rules, winning the psychological battle, finding the loopholes, bending the rules, forcing the officials to do their job, testing the rules, stretching the rules. In fact, I've heard it more than once that, quote, if you're not cheating or trying to cheat, you aren't trying hard enough to win, unquote. I don't care if the athlete is a professional or amateur. If the coach does not sanction a tactic, the player will not employ it. Conversely, every action of a player reflects upon the character of the coach, and if a player does do something that is illegal or unethical, the coach should be the first one to express that to the athlete and make sure there's no misunderstanding, the tactics, unacceptability. In the 2005 World Series between the White Sox of Chicago and the Astros of Houston, an incident occurred that at the time seemed rather benign in the eyes of many. The batter was Chicago's Jermaine Dye. The game was midway in the series. I believe there was a runner on base, two were out, and the score was close, possibly tied. The Astro pitcher threw a high and tight fastball so tight that Mr. Dye had to duck out of its way, and in doing so, the ball hit something. The question was, what did it hit? Had the object struck by the ball been the bat, it would have been a foul ball and possibly a strike, depending on the number of strikes already assigned. Had the ball struck Mr. Die, he would have been awarded first base, moving the runner on base to the next. This is one of the most difficult calls for a home plate umpire, as it happens so fast. Using his best judgment and given baseball's reluctance at the time to use video replay to get it right, he ruled that the ball had struck Mr. Die and awarded him first base. The ensuing batter hit a home run, which in essence won the game, turning the series for the White Sox. Although the officiating crew could not see a replay, the television audience did and the ball clearly hit the bat, not the player. It should have been a strike. But you see, the only person in the stadium that knew what had happened was the aforementioned Jermaine Dye. Had the culture of baseball been different, the umpire might have inquired of Mr. Dye as to the object that had been struck by the pitched baseball so the correct call could be made. But not only did that not happened by the home plate umpire. He didn't have that at his disposal. Mr. Dye, knowing that the ball did not hit him, was happily willing to be awarded first base, and his coaches and teammates accepted it with enthusiasm. 
It's possible, although highly unlikely, and I mean highly unlikely, that the coaches of the White Sox might have instructed the players that if the umpire needs to know what actually occurred so an appropriate and fair ruling could be made, they could ask any White Sox player who would provide an honest answer, even though the subsequent ruling might deter the team's chances of winning. Not a chance. But the culture of sport does not have to be so. Consider golf. There are countless stories of professional and amateur golfers in competition who have imposed penalties on themselves for unintentionally breaching a rule when no one saw them do so. You see, the culture of that sport so dictates. Had the same Germain die been on the fifth hole at his local golf course and accidentally moved his ball, he would very likely have added a stroke to his score. At least I hope he would have done so. And it's the same person with the same essential qualities. The only difference, you see, was the culture of the sport. We, hopefully, have finally come out of the steroid era in Major League Baseball. But I suspect that history will not look back on those years kindly. Already, players who were users during those seasons are finding that the doors to Cooperstown are closed to them, even though they have the numbers. Well, good for baseball's Hall of Fame and its voters. They've drawn a line in the sand, and my hope is that it will never be erased. If the mores of a culture are by their very nature contrived, who then is charged with that responsibility? In my view, the group most likely to wield that kind of power is the group of coaches. No athlete will act or react in a manner not positively sanctioned by his or her coach. The coach sets the standard. The players don't or won't. Look at various players' associations. When a member egregiously attacks another in the context of the game— the Players' Association does everything it can to protect the aggressor in the guise of jurisprudence while the victim is ignored. Some perhaps will remember the incident involving Todd Bertuzzi and Steve Moore. This was a number of years ago. The last time I checked, Todd Bertuzzi was playing and Steve was not. But at the time... We heard nothing from the NHL Players Association to support Steve Moore. But I have heard the same organization speak out several times in support of Mr. Tuzzi's, Bertuzzi's rights. And where was the NHL in all of this? Mr. Bertuzzi was given an indefinite suspension, which turned out to be a suspension during the strike season at the time. He was reinstated in the season following, which meant that the suspension was laughable, but the message the NHL sent to its fans, especially its youngest and most impressionable, was anything but. And where was Coach Mark Crawford in all of this? Did Mr. Bertuzzi have his blessing? When he made the conscious decision to attack Mr. Moore from behind, basically incapacitating him during the attack? I don't know the answers to these questions, but I'm sure had Coach Crawford informed Mr. Bertuzzi that no retribution was to be levied against Mr. Moore for a previous transgression on the part of Mr. Moore against the Canucks captain at the time, Marcus Nasland, in a game several days earlier, nothing would have happened. 
As it stands, Coach Crawford has been drawn into the legal battle as Mr. Bertuzzi accuses his coach of not providing the necessary guidelines to have prevented this unfortunate incident. Did you want any greater proof of the power and influence of the coach? Coach Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots made it very clear how he feels about this issue. Even though he knew he was breaking the rules, he condoned videotaping opposition coaches as they sent visual signals into the game. I'm one who does not dismiss the fact that questions now exist about their previous Super Bowl victories. And there were other incidents with Coach Belichick. But coaches don't have the sole responsibility for this. There's another group that seemingly gets off the hook, certainly by the media, almost unscathed, and that's the fans. You perhaps will remember, if you're a baseball fan and uh, you are of a certain age, that Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were sending baseballs over outfield fences at an unprecedented rate, even though there were very strong suspicions that most were juiced. The fans cheered even louder virtually ignoring even the hint of impropriety on the part of the athletes, even though there were strong assertions to the contrary. You see, professional sports is a business. And lo and behold, the fans are the customers or consumers. So let's uh, give it what they want attitude. Ethics be damned. Why do athletes have this attitude? Privilege and entitlement. We place athletes on such high pedestals almost from the time their athletic skills are evident that why would we be surprised when as adults they feel as though their special status places them above rules and regulations? We allow, no, promote their greed. I shake my head every time a collective bargaining agreement is in negotiation between players and management and I hear that one of the sticking points in the negotiations is a per diem. These are multi-million dollar a year players who want their food costs reimbursed when their job takes them on the road. As ticket purchasers, we pay for it. Many of those same athletes will assume positions of power and influence when they leave professional sports and enter the business world. What mores and values do you think they will take with them? As spectators and fans, we have the power. We can turn this around with our feet if we stay away from arenas, fields, courts, etc. in large enough numbers. We can change this culture. But for everyone who would be willing to do so, there are many who would buy your seat and take your place. Therefore, we are just as guilty. Parents can be a part of the culture without even realizing it. What's the most common question a parent asks when son or daughter returns home from an athletic contest? Is it, did you win? Well, that's almost always the question. Rarely is it, did you have fun? Or tell me about your game. In a worst case scenario, a parent can live vicariously through his or her children. When that happens, winning and losing becomes paramount. With the child not only feeling great pressure, but it's very likely that when the child becomes a parent, him or herself, the cycle just simply repeats. How a parent acts and reacts while witnessing an athletic contest in which a child is participating is especially critical as it paints such a vivid picture for the child. A parent screaming and yelling at the official and opponent 
or an opponent's supporter sends the win-lose message indelibly to the child. Our society is obsessed with winning and losing. An excellent example is the seemingly endless parade of award shows that come across our television screens. It's not enough to recognize excellence. That's commendable. But why in the process do we have to create losers who perhaps never wanted to be in the contest in the first place? Look, I enjoy watching the Academy Awards show each spring. It's fascinating, but why can't the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences simply recognize excellence? Well, it's marketing. Another television award show I enjoy is the NHL Awards. Some of the awards recognize statistical excellence. The Maurice Richard Trophy goes to the player who scored the highest number of goals. I get that. But when it comes to subjective awards like the MVP, the P might be plural. But you see, three get nominated, and I know it's an honor to be so recognized. I get that. But when the evening concludes, two will lose and one will win the award. If in a given season the august body charged with the responsibility of identifying excellence feels that two players reach the highest status in a category, then both should be so recognized. There may be only one. Well, great. Then he's the the MVP, or she's the MVP. When I suggest this to friends, I get laughed at. That's how ingrained winning and losing has become. Every four years, well, it's really every two years, because now the, the Olympic Games, summer and winter, are on a two-year cycle, so to speak. And Olympic medals are the prize. I'm hoping to do an episode on the real value of an Olympic medal to the country in the face of the rest of the world, but Let's not go down that rabbit hole right now. You see, we have made that prize way too valuable in my view. It's not the Olympic gold medal that's the motivation. It's the tangible rewards that go with it. I'm one who was not happy when the Canadian Olympic Committee decided to reward our Olympic medals with cash prizes. I felt that Canada's stand to not follow so many other countries to do so was a shining beacon to the sports world. Now we've acquiesced to baser instincts. I'm also less than thrilled that prize money is now on the line for our national curling championships. What's wrong with simply the pride that comes from being able to say that you're the Scotty or Briar champion? We now have our feet on the same slippery slope so many sports have found treacherous. Well, good luck with that. As coaches, we can do something to stem the tide of this win-at-all-cost attitude. And here are some of them, and I'm sure you can think of more. Instill in our athletes that pride of performance, fun, and integrity are paramount. Winning is simply a byproduct of performance, something that can't be controlled. Teach skills within the rules and for the right reasons, and that's to make the contest fair and safe for all who play, not in light of circumventing the rules. Identify coaches who do not adhere to the ethics of coaching and help to redirect their energies elsewhere. They should not be influencing our most valuable resource, our young people. If necessary, take steps to assist in their departure from the sport. 
If our athletes are minors, make sure that parents or caregivers know that we do not subscribe to the win-at-all-cost attitude that will be coaching their son or daughter in that manner. Attend sports association meetings to make sure we have their support in our philosophy. Demonstrate by example everything you believe to be right about sports. We need to draw to the attention of our athletes that in the curling rulebook, the first page is the Code of Ethics, and it's for athletes, coaches, and officials. We have all heard the adage that sports build character. That's not true. You see, sports reveals character. Now look, I'm not anti-competition. If that's the impression this episode gives, then I've missed the mark. Competition promotes progress in mankind. I am against the win-at-all-costs philosophy that seems so pervasive in sport today, where athletes will do anything, and I mean anything, to win. To conclude the episode, I want to repeat Mr. Roden's words. Sport is that child we raised with money but not love. We allowed to grow up amid privilege but no value except to win at all costs. The child has grown up out of control in a culture of cheating, of steroids, and illegal taping of embarrassing conduct off the field. That's not what sports is all about, at least not for my position behind a pane in the glass. Oh, by the way, the MVP for the 2005 World Series, Jermaine Dye.